Hello and welcome to The Energy Gang, a discussion show about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Ed Crooks. So what we have for you today is a special catch-up episode with a little bit more from the COP28 climate talks in Dubai. You may well have heard the series of episodes that we produced while we were out there at the talks earlier in the month, and we interviewed many of the interesting and influential people from the world of energy that were present in and around those talks. But unfortunately, at the time, we weren't able to use all of those interviews. They did include, though, some really, really interesting conversations. So what we're going to do is bring you three of them now. We're thinking of this as a kind of notebook emptying exercise, if you like, just catching up on all the stray things we couldn't quite fit into a regular show during the talks but we think are worth hearing so later on in the show you can hear my conversation with kevin Kariuki, who's the vice president for power energy climate and green growth at the african development bank we need to pay due attention to climate change because whether you like it or not it's here with us and therefore we might as well address it you can also hear me talk to Letitia Dumaray, who's the Senior Programme Director at the Climate Finance Access Network run by the think tank RMI. And they're both going to be talking about ways to increase investment in cutting emissions and adapting to the impacts of climate change. The discussion on the phasing out of fossil fuels and the phasing in of renewable energy is really the battleground here at COP28. But before we hear from them, we have an interview with the head of a company that works on technology for reducing emissions. Mark Davis is the chief executive of Capterio, which works on solutions to stop gas being wasted by being burned off in flares. I spoke to him at the Climate Action Innovation Zone, which was an area a little way away from the main COP site for companies to show off their technologies for decarbonisation. Mark, thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you, Ed. Great to be here. So tell me about gas flaring then. It's obviously a very big problem in the oil and gas industry. It's something that there's a huge global effort to try and address at the moment. Can you talk a bit about why it's such a big problem and what's being done to address it? Yes, well, first of all, what is gas flaring? Gas flaring is the deliberate burning of natural gas. It usually comes from the as a byproduct of the oil production. So when you produce oil, gas comes out of solution, and if you don't have a solution for it, you flare it. But flaring is part of the family of flaring and methane. And if you put flaring and methane together, you have a really large source of waste within the oil-gas supply chain. You know, it's actually about 260 billion cubic metres of gas that, that is 7% of global consumption of gas. So, you know, 7% of our gas that we use as consumers is actually burnt. And it's a real source of not only waste, economic waste, it's valued at about $70 billion of lost revenue, but also, really importantly, source of emissions. And depending on how you measure methane versus CO2, it's somewhere between 2.6 and 6.7 billion tonnes. That's a massive amount. And, you know, with methane being so potent as a natural gas, and if you add that into the CO2 from flaring, you have a really big source of emissions that is largely avoidable. And given that we have an energy crisis, we need to fix it urgently. So here at COP28, clearly the issue of the waste of natural gas through methane leakage and through flaring has been one of the big issues. It's been something that's a top priority for our hosts here, the United Arab Emirates, are big producers of oil in particular, also pretty significant producers of natural gas. And when they think about one of their goals, which is essentially to preserve long-term demand for oil and gas as much as they can while simultaneously reducing emissions, addressing flaring and leakage is a big part of that. So what we've seen at COP28 has been this pledge from a large number of oil and gas companies, I think it's 52 now at the last count, signing up to this oil and gas decarbonisation charter. 
which was announced with quite a lot of fanfare, it's also attracted quite a lot of criticism and people saying, well, what's really new about this? We've seen quite a lot of companies just kind of re-announcing the pledges they've already made. What's your sense of it been? How significant is this charter announcement? I think this charter is quite significant. It commits 52 companies, as you rightly say, to very high standards on emissions within the supply chain. So really they're committing to ending routine flaring, getting to zero routine flaring by 2030. They're also committing to making sure that their methane emissions within the supply chain is low. So, you know, ostensibly this is good. One thing that whilst the commitments are not much different from the commitments that the leading majors have already made, you're quite right there, what's really good is it's brought on board for the first time 29 national oil companies. And these are companies that have never actually had any previous statements on on emissions. And to bring them to the table, albeit only for a scope one, effectively, commitment to reduce emissions, is is a big achievement. And I, I think, actually, we shouldn't underestimate the statecraft involved in bringing this to the table. But as I'm sure we'll get into, there's some so what and some but how does it happen questions. Absolutely. Very interested in the how does it happen. And we'll come out to that in a moment. Just before we do, just as a kind of a footnote for people who may not be familiar with the jargon, scope one emissions, that means the emissions from their own operations that they directly create when they're producing the oil and gas, that's what they've agreed to cut to zero. That's correct. They've agreed to cut the, the emissions from flaring and methane, the part of scope one. Very different, of course, from the scope three emissions, which is much, much higher. You know, typically 85% of the emissions come from scope three. So, you know, the cynics might say, well, great to hear that you're cutting your scope one, but, you know, scope three is a real problem. And I would agree with that. But I think, you know, we have to consider this as a, a positive step and not really a, a license to produce more oil per se and therefore more scope three emissions. Right. Because And just as a very, very rough rule of thumb to give people a, a sense of kind of how to benchmark this, if you think about scope one emissions and also scope two emissions, which come from the energy that these companies are buying themselves and using, put those two things together. When you look at the entire emissions from oil and gas throughout the complete value chain from first production coming out of the well to when it's finally used by the final consumer. Those scope one and two emissions might be what, maybe a quarter of the total, something like that? It's a bit less than that. On average, it's about 15%. Scope one is 15% of the total. But here's a fun fact. There's a very wide range in the carbon intensity of the barrel of oil or gas equivalent. And you know, all the way from Norway, which is very low, by the way, from good policy and good practice, to Venezuela and Turkmenistan, very high. But here's the fun fact. There are some barrels in production in Venezuela for which their scope one emissions are greater than the scope three emissions. And this is staggering to appreciate. And it really shows why we need to have a real focus on operational performance and reducing scope one emissions. Yeah, that is absolutely staggering that those scope one emissions from production can be as high as that. I guess this really goes directly to what is clearly one of the central debates and points of contention at this COP, which is the question of the language that is going to come out finally at the end about the future of fossil fuels and the question of whether the world should commit to phasing out fossil fuels altogether or to phasing them down. And clearly the argument from people would say it's all right to talk about phasing down rather than phasing out is we have to see a continued role for fossil fuels as long as emissions are being reduced. And so presumably is that part of the argument that if we can cut these emissions from production, that sort of extends the runway for fossil fuels and helps make the case for why we could use fossil fuels for longer, or not really? 
I think it's an important step and it's important for the industry to recognize that its license to operate means that it needs to be doing everything it can on emissions reduction. But it doesn't take us away from the fundamental challenge that we do need to urgently reduce emissions. And there's two ways of doing that. We either phase down, phase out fossil fuels, or we make sure they're fully abated. But, you know, the scale of the abatement potential through CCS is quite limited. I was going to say, that abatement goes to carbon capture then and uh, everything that goes with that. So the Energy Transitions Commission's conclusion is that CCS, carbon capture and storage, is vital, but it's limited. So we will need to make sure that we do phase down or phase out. So just going back to the significance of that pledge then from these large oil and gas companies around the world, given everything you've been saying about essentially the importance of reducing not just the emissions from production operations, but actually the emissions created when, when fossil fuels are consumed, how significant can it be to address those production emissions? It, it, it's an important step, um, but it's definitely not. So it's necessary, but not sufficient. Right, got it. I see what you mean. And I suppose the other point you could make is just to say that given the scale of the problem, we need to do everything. We need to pull every lever that we've got. Anything that can be done to reduce emissions should be done. That's correct. But I suppose to extend that thought, you know, it will take us time to, to transition. But solving scope one emissions, and to some extent scope two, solving scope one emissions is a quick win lever. You know, this is what's amazing about it is that most of the emissions are methane, either as flaring or as venting or leaking. And methane is natural gas. It's a valuable product. So it does not make sense to be burning or to be wasting a natural product. So, and it's a quick win lever. And it actually, the IEA said this, we've said this, for the most part has a negative marginal abatement cost. It comes for free. It pays itself. And if it, if it does cost, if it does cost, most of it is less than $20 per tonne of CO2. So it really makes economic sense to stop this. Right. And so this is something that Melissa Lott, who's a regular on this podcast, she's Director of Research at Columbia University's Centre on Global Energy Policy, she just says this is something, there shouldn't even be a debate about this. This is so obvious that it's something that needs to be done because, as you say, there's no economic cost to it at all. It's actually an economic benefit and it also reduces emissions at the same time. This should just be done tomorrow. That's right. It should just be done. It, it, it can be done and it should be done. And it's in, the, uh, in companies' and countries' own incentives. So if I'm a major producing country, by reducing my flaring, venting, leaking, I can capture more molecules, I can sell more, I can have increased revenue, I can also improve energy security, and I can stop this crazy situation where... Egypt or Iraq are buying gas and or power from their neighbours at very high prices when they could improve their energy security. And last but not least, you can then generate cash to finance their own energy transitions. So if it's obvious that it should be done, how does it get done? How do you make it happen? And where do you come in then in, as Capterio? What role do you play in making it happen? So to make sure that we are seeing the progress we need, we need to measure and companies aren't necessarily the best at providing their own measurements. And there's a number of reasons for that. One is that actually, historically, companies don't measure their waste. Why would you measure a waste product? It's a waste product. I don't, I don't, there's no incentive to measure it. And sometimes there are behaviors that mean that strategic under-reporting maybe means you can avoid a penalty or something like that. So we need independent data. And when we find independent data, we often find, guess what, that the emissions are much higher than we 
than they are previously reported, sometimes 10 times higher. So this is incredible. And where does this data come from, you might be asking? Well, you know, there is incredible sources of data on emissions today, all the way from satellites to airplanes and drones and then to on-the-ground detection. My expertise and what we focus on in Capturio is, is tracking emissions by satellite, and we particularly track flaring, which is easily detected from space, from the heat anomaly. In fact, there, some of the original science, by the way, shout out was done to by Morgan Bazilian and his team in Colorado School of Mines, who developed an algorithm. We've developed that algorithm further and we can track every flare for every asset, every company worldwide every day. And we can therefore provide independent calibrated third-party data that really challenges and lifts the lids on the opportunity. Yes, on that, I heard John Kerry, you know, the US presidential envoy on climate, uh, say the other day, he says something like, there is no place to hide on flaring and methane leakage that increasingly these data services are getting better and better. We're getting greater precision, covering bigger areas, having more regular monitoring, all the rest of it. And so we are getting a clearer and clearer picture globally of exactly how much of this gas is being wasted. That's right, yeah? That's absolutely right. We're getting a very clear picture, both of flaring and of methane, and we can detect down to, on the flaring side, down to about a quarter of a million standard cubic feet, which is quite small. We can detect down to about 200 kilograms per hour, which is also quite small on the methane side. So there is nowhere to hide. And by the way, shout out to, not to John Kerry, but to Al Gore's group and the Climate Trace. They announced this week, I believe, at COP, a massive extension to the Climate Trace Programme where they're tracking every single emission throughout all supply chains and they're making it publicly available. It's an incredible piece of insight. As you say, one of, that's one of the things which is really interesting is how much of this information is now just kind of out there on the web and anyone can go and look at it. So you have this Flare Intel service. There's a thing that you provide some of the data for, is that right? Which again, is that's just open source. Anyone can take a look at it, correct? Yeah, so what we do is we take data from NASA and NOAA satellites and we process it uh, to reveal the flaring at, in, at an individual site every day. And what we do is we then help our, comp our clients to understand their emissions in real time. And they use our services with our product Flarentel to do three things really. Number one, get better visibility of flaring. Often they don't necessarily know precisely what the flaring is because flaring is not measured. Equally because often the flaring within a company's portfolio might be operated by one of their joint venture partners. They may be a non-operated equity holder in an asset. And if you're the non-operator, you don't necessarily know exactly what's going on. But secondly, here's a really awesome thing. Flaring is often a diagnostic of operational performance. So if you can see flare upsets happening, uh, you can actually detect that something's gone wrong, some equipment has failed, and you can intervene immediately. And this gives you the insight to have that operational intelligence. But thirdly, and this links to how do we fix it, we can use the data from Flare Intel to identify opportunities, i.e. significant flares that may well be near existing infrastructure that for which a technical solution could be brought to help recover that gas, add value, and decarbonize at the same time. So coming back to COP28 again and thinking about whether the conference is a success or not, it's something, it's a question I often get asked, I'm sure you do as well, has COP28 achieved its objectives? You see all these posters around the conference saying, we need action, not words, or turning pledges into action, or whatever it might be. Obviously, the cynical response is to say that words about action are some of the most common words you hear people use. And again, that's sort of that's part of that uh, kind of cycle of discourse and discussion around the COP is those kind of cliches about the need for action. When you look over the next few years, and if we come back in 
future COPs. And if we come back in five years' time, or let's say in 2030, which is when some of these targets are, are meant to be achieved by, what do you think we'll see? Do you believe that we will actually achieve these pledges and get to these goals that these companies have been setting? I think we've got a good chance. And I think there's there's energy and commitment from so many groups to make this happen. But, you know, we do need to take the step to actual action on the ground. And this means we need to use data to find opportunities. We then need to have leadership to drive those opportunities forward. We need to find ways of financing the uh, development, the project development work to take opportunities from ideas to investable solutions and that by the way requires technical and commercial work and money and then we need to finance the actual projects here's the another big challenge that we face because when i speak to asset managers and major financing institutions they tell me there's three problems around this flaring and methane topic the first they say is we don't really want to touch this because it's fossil fuel And this is a real challenge because unless we fund these investments, we're not going to make the changes. So I would like to reframe the conversation uh, or the characterization, not call these fossil fuel projects, call them what they are, which is decarbonization projects. The second challenge we often face is, oh, but they're in non-OECD countries and the country risk is too high and the cost of capital is too high and doesn't meet my investment hurdle. So we need to find ways of solving that problem. And this is where the World Bank fund is helpful, although at $255 million, it's only about 0.25% of what we really need. And of course, we need to crowd in private capital. We can't just do this with public money. But then lastly, as I said, we actually need to build a project pipeline that is investable. There's loads of opportunity, there's loads of ideas, but they do need investment to get them to an investable stage. And so how can the governments that are meeting here at COP28 really make a difference to make sure that all those barriers can be broken through and you can actually get that capital flowing? Yes, I think there's two big things. Firstly, we need leadership from governments to help unlock progress within their industry. And we need governments and ministries to break down barriers between operators to make sure the infrastructure is used in the most collective and collaborative way. But secondly, there's the whole thing of regulation and standards. And, you know, there's lots lots of developments here, which is fantastic. To shout out a few, Nigeria, first African country to have developed a methane performance standard. Great news. U.S., IRA has obviously given lots of incentives. The EPA came out only this week with its revamped methane regulations. But what I'm personally most excited about is the EU. They came out a couple of weeks ago with the methane performance standard. And what this really is, is a form of carbon tax. Basically, what they're saying is by 2030, unless you can prove that your oil or gas that you export to us as a major buyer, a major importer, is of a low a greenhouse gas intensity, we will levy a penalty on you. And I think why I really like this is because it does set a standard for what import quality should look like, but it also sets a gives a commercial incentive to the producers to clean up their act. And, you know, if I'm a producer in North Africa, why would I pay cash to the EU when I could invest that same cash at home, reduce the emissions, improve my own energy security, create value, and accelerate the transition. You know, this kind of regulation could be pivotal and really accelerate action. Yeah, that is fascinating, actually. And that does sound, as you say, like a really significant development. I've been sounding a bit cynical here, but as you say, it's clear that there are things happening and certainly there is some action as well as the talk. 
Yes. Uh, so, you know, the world, it, the, the opportunities are out there. We've got the leadership commitment. We've got the beginnings of the company commitment. By the way, we need to get more companies signing up to the Global Decarbonization Alliance. It's only 40% of oil production today, but it's a good step. But we need to also back it with ways, innovative ways to unlock financing. So we actually deliver on the ground projects because action builds trust, but action doesn't happen until you get cash in the right place. And you do the really hard nitty gritty work of hard hats and helmets in the ground solving problems, you know, in the field. Well, Davis, thanks very much. Great talking to you. Thank you very much. Someone else I spoke to at the COP talks was Letitia Dumaray, who's the Senior Programme Director at the Climate Finance Access Network, run by the think tank RMI. Letitia, thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So you were saying earlier, you've been coming to COPs for 20 years. What are your impressions of COP28 so far? And how successful do you think this conference is shaping up to be? Well, I have to say this COP is different to start with. Uh, different in scale, different also in the way the presidency is approaching the agenda of the COP. As you mentioned, I've been involved in this process for 20 years. And for 20 years, the most vulnerable countries have been calling for a loss and damage fund. And that's the first time uh, this fund is, is you know, being on the table, being approved on the first day, which is, you know, that never been seen in a COP that a decision is made on the first day. So it's quite an historic moment, I believe. And I think it's also sort of a make or break moment for the, the international community. As you know, the global stock take showed us that we are not on track for the 1.5 degrees Celsius limit. And many of the observers, many of the analysts and many of the governments here think this is our last chance really to get back on track. The importance of this COP, the stakes have never been so high. So I think, yeah, this COP is pretty important. <laughs> so I want to come back to that question of, as you say, the last chance to get on that 1.5 degree pathway in a moment. Before we do, let's just think a bit about climate finance. As you say, this question of the loss and damage fund to compensate low and middle income countries for the damage done by climate change has been something that's been requested for many, many years. At last, it's happening. And there are real commitments. And as you say, it was a big sort of success for the UAE presidency, the hosts of this COP, to have an announcement right on the very first day to say, look, this fund which was agreed in principle a year ago in Egypt is now actually getting real commitments behind it. But obviously the big question that everyone's raising is look at the amounts of money that are there. I think people are saying estimates vary Mm -hmm. depending on exactly what you count as a commitment, but it's sort of six or seven hundred million dollars probably is being pledged to this loss and damage fund. Given the scale of the impacts of climate change around the world, which certainly could run into tens of billions, could run into the hundreds of billions or even trillions of dollars, Mm -hmm. depending on which estimate you look at. How significant is that loss and damage fund really? Is that not just a drop in the bucket? Well, I want to be optimistic here. First off, the fact that countries, including some developed countries that have been opposed to the very concept of loss and damage compensation, have approved the work of the Transitional Committee, have adopted this decision, and have pledged. I'm thinking in particular uh, the United States. The fact that they have contributed to this fund, I think, is a major signal that loss and damage is taken very seriously. Although, yes, as you said, uh, we are, I think, at 725 million at the moment. It's a drop in a bucket compared to the real 
cost of loss and damage across the world. But now we have a vehicle, we have a fund. We have a fund that can receive contributions, voluntary contributions, that can receive also from over sources, innovative sources. I think, you know, a lot of people are looking at carbon markets, for example, to provide some additional funding. So this is a start. The work really starts now. We have established this fund. It has to be set up in its institutional setup. It's still to be operationalized. So there's, there's a lot, there's still a lot to be done. But I would say you cannot have any form of compensation without having, you know, the institutional shell. So it starts today, really. And so what's your view of the debate on climate finance more broadly? We've had since 2009, that was actually the first COP that I went to, um, (laughs) COP15 in Copenhagen back in 2009, agreed this $100 billion that would flow from rich countries to poorer countries to pay for cost of mitigating emissions Mm -hmm. and adapting to climate change. In terms of the data, I mean, the data, again, are pretty unclear, actually, in terms of how much has actually flowed. But all the years since then, where we have reasonably reliable numbers, it doesn't look like that 100 billion has ever been achieved. I think the highest number that's been reported was $90 billion in 2021. Now, it is possible that in 2022 and maybe again, perhaps in 2023, we will have reached that 100 billion figure, although it's unclear. But anyway, broadly speaking, in terms of that total period since 2009, flows of climate finance have fallen well short of what the rich world promised. That commitment comes to an end as of next year, and there's this new plan that's meant to replace it, this thing they're calling the new collective quantified goal for climate finance, which seems to be the idea is that's going to be much more ambitious, right? And there'll be much bigger numbers attached to that. So, I mean, question, how is the debate going at the moment? What progress is being made? And given that the world apparently couldn't even get to $100 billion a year of climate finance flowing, what makes people think that it's realistic to start talking about much larger numbers in this new phase? Yeah, I mean, maybe starting by stating the obvious, climate finance is critical to this process, is critical to climate action, is the main enabler, but it's also the best way to build trust and confidence within this process between developed and developing countries. And as you said, the 100 billion goal Every year, uh, we look at the numbers. There's a lot of controversies about these numbers because there's no real definition of what climate finance covers. There's different methodologies. It's kind of a free-for-all. Each developed country reports in their, with their own methodology. So I think we have learned a lot from the 100 billion. And for this new uh, collective quantified goal, the NCQG, that's one of the new acronyms in the process. Um, Always new acronyms being only, invented. We love our acronyms. Policy, yes. um, so I think we've learned. And I think one of the first issues that we have to tackle is to define what climate finance is. And and there is technical work underway to ensure. Also, I think the NCQG in nature will be very different from the 100 billion goal. The 100 billion goal was mostly a political move from the developing uh, the developed countries towards developing countries to sort of recover from the fiasco of the Copenhagen COP. And it was very vague. It was you know, mobilizing finance for adaptation and mitigation in developing countries. There was no tracking mechanism. Yeah, it was very vague. With the new uh, collective goal, I think we're looking at a more complex and layered goal. There's a lot of discussion about subdividing this goal for mitigation, adaptation, and potentially loss and damage. And also be more inclusive in terms of the instruments. There was a big focus, obviously, on for the 100 billion on public uh, funding. The private part of the 100 billion never really delivered. 
So we need to do a lot better with the NCQG. So a lot of discussions there, a lot of uh, very controversial discussions as well, because the NCQG is under the Kyoto Protocol, which opened the possibility of broadening the, the base of contributors. So we are not necessarily only talking about only the developed countries, but emerging economies. So that, that is one of the, the key controversial issues that are being discussed. And maybe the one last point is that, as you remember, the 100 billion goal was, was set in 2010 and was supposed to be achieved by 2020. It was then extended to 2025. For the NCQG, the idea is to think what would be the most appropriate time period? Five years, 10 years, should we synchronize this goal with the overall processes within the UNFCCC negotiations, such as, for example, the next global stock take. So, you know, a lot on the table and the negotiators have a lot of probably sleepless nights ahead of them. And you raise a really interesting point about the balance between public sector money and private sector money. And as you say, I think when people think about that 100 billion, they think about it in terms of sort of aid payments, I guess, or other kinds of development assistance going from the governments of rich countries to those low and middle income countries. It seems like, as you say, what people are thinking about much more now is thinking about attracting private sector capital, getting investment to flow into those lower income countries Mm -hmm. in order to finance the energy transition, essentially the shift to a lower carbon economy. How can you do that? I mean, do you have ideas or when you think about, because I mean, as you will know, there's, there's all kinds of barriers that make it hard for investors and banks in the rich countries to deploy capital in the global south. What are the ways you could kind of break down those barriers and accelerate flows of capital and really generate much more investment into a low carbon economy in those lower income countries? I think the, the, the focus of the discussion when it comes to private sector financing is how can public money have the most catalytic impact possible? Because it's, it's clear that 100 billion, even 500 billion would not be enough to finance the energy transition or even more the adaptation needs of the developing countries. So I think that's why the NCQG is giving us this opportunity to have different goals for adaptation, mitigation and, and possibly loss and damage. Adaptation is mostly grand base. Very concessional loans. We don't want to increase the debt burden on on developing countries to meet their their adaptation needs. When it comes to mitigation, it's a different story, obviously, because we talk about economic development, we talk about opportunities, we talk about job creation, and there there's an interest from the private sector. So I think we have to to get better at identifying where public money can make a difference. And in particular, we see the work that RMI is doing in the Global South in particular is to support development of projects in the regions and to ensure that those projects are high quality, that they are high impact. So to do so, Capacity building is extremely important. Technical assistance is extremely important. That can come from the public sector, helping to de-risk those projects because the private sector will not come if the risks are too high. And it's still the case in many developing countries where you know political risk, even climate risk uh, these days, obviously. So there's a role for each of the different type of finance to play in the transition towards you know, green pathways. And currency risk as well. That's something I hear about a lot when people talk Absolutely. about possibly investing in these lower income countries. Yes. That's another thing that can be a real barrier to investment. So I want to go back then to something also that you said earlier, talking about the 1.5 degree pathway. 
the course that the world needs to be on in order to limit global warming by the end of the century to 1.5 degrees Celsius. And I can't remember exactly the, the phrase you used, but you said basically we're running out of time. The kind of the door is closing to that. What do you think needs to happen here at COP28 to get us onto that pathway? What could be the strong signal that could come out of this conference that would have the effect of shifting the world very radically onto a different pathway? Because as we've been saying, as the global stock take shows, we're certainly not on that pathway now. Yeah, well, the discussion on the phasing out of fossil fuels and the phasing in of renewable energy is really the battleground here at COP28. So I think, and RMI has been very much involved in those discussions. The key message that needs to come out of this conference is that the energy transition is inevitable, that it has started, but it needs to go much faster. And obviously, it, is, it seems a bit strange that we are having this discussion here in UAE in a, in a petrol state. But... Some also think that my, maybe it is the right place to have this discussion um, with Sultan Al Jaber, that's the president leading, leading the discussions among his peers and bringing everyone to the table to find a compromise. RMI has been contributing to the discussion through uh, building alliances with the uh, renewable energy industry, with different organizations, pushing for the adoption of a renewable energy target. Uh, you may have heard that there's this idea, and it's in the text at the moment, there's this idea of tripling renewable energy capacity by 2030 and doubling the energy efficiency by 2030. So we believe these targets would send very strong signal to the market to the investors and would probably put to rest the idea that, you know, we have more time, we can do that in phases. No, this is an extremely ambitious target that needs to be achieved within seven years. So there's, there's really no time to waste and it's like all hands on deck. I think that will also um, send strong signals to, to the governments. Uh, one of the key barriers to the deployments of renewable energy is the regulatory framework, ensuring that there's an enabling environment, ensuring that you know, all the processes are there to facilitate the development of projects and, and their implementation. So I think all the actors have something to win if we adopt this target here at COP28. And yeah, we hope that the, the negotiators will get to this agreement. And also it's a positive in positive outcome, I believe. That will give hope to um, a lot of the actors here, uh, youth, you know, who have been asking for solutions. Those uh, gatherings have been creating a lot of anxiety. You come here and, you know, the message you see everywhere in the media is, basically, we are doomed. We are off the pathways. It's a very pessimistic message. But if we can come out of here with, you know, this North Star that is tripling renewable energy, that gives us a direction of travel. And I think that will re-energize the world, which is RMI's slogan here um, at COP28. That is a fascinating point. And certainly what happens to that commitment and whether that does get included in the final text is going to be a very interesting thing to watch over the days to come. Letizia de Marais, thanks very much indeed. Great talking to you. Thank you for having me. And to expand on those ideas about climate finance and to speak to someone who's directly involved in mobilizing capital for investment in energy and climate-related projects, I spoke with Kevin Kariuki, who's the Vice President for Power, Energy, Climate and Green Growth at the African Development Bank. Kevin, thanks very much for joining us. It's truly my pleasure, Ed, to be here on this uh, podcast. So I know you're about to return home after having been at the COP. Clearly, at the ADB, you're most interested in the question of financing 
and climate finance has been a huge subject for debate here at COP28. How successful do you think COP28 has been in really making progress on the question of mobilizing capital to support decarbonization in Africa? I think the first thing to talk about is the obviously the issue of the $100 billion. I do understand that um, this is on the cards. We are likely to, to meet the $100 billion, so that's good for signaling effect, not so much for what it can be able to do, so much for signaling effect. Of course, we are still interested to understand on the issue of doubling of adaptation finance, which is the biggest issue on the continent. So we will be very keen to hear more about the extent of progress as far as adaptation finance is concerned. And from a bank perspective, uh, what we did is that at this um, COP, we launched the first call for proposals for what we call the climate action window, uh, which is intended to provide availability, accessibility, and affordable financing for Africa's most vulnerable countries to climate change. So you mentioned the $100 billion. This is the amount of money that was agreed all the way back in 2009, which is meant to be flowing from rich countries to low and middle income countries to support emissions reduction and adaptation to climate change. That target of $100 billion a year has never yet been met until now, right? And as you say, that positive sign is that it seems like maybe this year, perhaps last year as well, we have got to $100 billion. You said you thought that was important for signaling. It's purely for signaling effect, because I think um, very soon we'll start discussing about the new collective quantifiable goal, which will be significantly, I would expect, will be significantly much higher than the $100 billion. The $100 billion will be the floor. But I think there is stronger interest in um, transparency of climate finance. And therefore, if indeed the needs of the developing world are truly quantified and a big number is a number that is commensurate with the level of effort required to address climate action on the continent and indeed in the world in the developing world then i think we'll be making some progress and uh, but uh, but we will only be able to know at the end of uh, the negotiations whether the issue of the new collective and quantifiable goal there has been movements in that regard because at, at least people need to start talking about that but uh, the other thing I need to, to talk about here on the issue of climate finance is the issue of adaptation finance. Because as I said, it's the biggest issue on the continent. So at the COP, we had what I would call a showstopper of an event in which we presented to the world the, uh, an innovation from the bank, which is what we call adaptation compacts. Adaptation compacts essentially translate and nationally determined contributions and national adaptation plans into a series of investable or financeable projects. Because right now, if you ask, you know, there is this call to double adaptation. But if you go to, to the potential donors, they will ask you or they, they will retort and say, where are the adaptation projects? So what we've done is to actually disaggregate these national determined contributions, as well as the national adaptation plans into a series of projects that when such a question is asked, we'll say, here are the financeable projects for country A, here are the financeable projects for country B. And this event was really well attended and that concept was really acclaimed. And we had in attendance, for example, the presidents of uh, Tanzania, the president of Comoros, the president of, uh, of Senegal, prime minister of uh, Ruta of the Netherlands, and the, the UK foreign secretary uh, was also there, as well as Bill Gates and our bank president, Dr. Adesina. 
So I think um, for me that was huge because all of a sudden we are providing tools which are now financeable and would be able to contribute in a big way towards our Africa Ad Adaptation Acceleration Program or AAAP, which we are developing or which we are rolling out, not developing, together with the Global Centre on Adaptation. Yeah, that is absolutely fascinating. And as you say, when you talk to a lot of banks and investors in the rich countries about investing in development in Africa, they'll say the projects aren't there. And I mean, it's true for actually for mitigation, for emissions reduction projects as well as for adaptation. So when you talk about investable projects in adaptation, what kind of things do you mean there? Can you give us an idea of what sort of projects could be financed? You know, when you're looking at uh, you know, smart agriculture, it's one thing that you can finance in adaptation. You can incorporate adaptation in transportation projects. You have issues of um, desalination of, of water. That's an adaptation project. Building of seawalls, those are adaptation projects. So those are the kind of projects we are saying uh, that are necessary to look at. And of course, you know, even there are other projects that have both mitigation and uh, adaptation benefits like electricity or solar power, uh, you know, or if you are to use solar power for pumping and irrigation, now, you know, th so you are actually extending uh, that agricultural aspect. And another thing that we are very strong at the bank is the issue of uh, using uh, climate smart agriculture. So that is again an adaptation measure. And what does that mean? Climate smart agriculture, what is that? For example, you can have uh, heat resistant uh, seeds so that, you know, for example, in a country like Ethiopia, we have provided Ethiopia with heat resistant seeds as a result that of which, and very high yielding, as a result of which Ethiopia is turned from a net importer of wheat to a next net exporter of wheat within a period of three years. That is fascinating, yeah. And so on the energy yes. side, in terms of developing low carbon energy in Africa, is this something that could also help investment flow into those energy projects as well? This is different from, from adaptation companies, it's different. When it comes to the issue of energy, first of all, I think the biggest challenge with energy in Africa is the issue of attracting financing. And I you know, for example, to date, Africa only accounts for about 2% of global investments in renewable energy, which is very, very little, especially considering that Africa has significant energy benefits, accounting for only 6% of global energy demand, despite being having abundant energy resources, you know, solar, wind, hydro, geothermal, etc., etc. So what we are doing here is that we are working towards increasing the number of bankable projects because this is what has sort of constrained the amount of resources we are able to attract the lack of bankable projects so what we did here at this cop is that, sorry we started at cop 27 we launched what we call the alliance for green infrastructure in africa agia so that was established but what we did here was to carry out a fundraising exercise for purposes of you know creating a fund for project preparation and project development. So we were able to get strong commitments of about $175 million of the target, of the targeted $500 million that we are hoping for this particular exercise. And we hope that by quarter one next year, in quarter one next year, we should be able to reach our first close of about uh, $300 million for purposes of project preparation and project development. And the idea here, once you have well-structured bankable projects, then as we always say, capital will flow. Uh, and, and therefore, here I must say, we, we welcome uh, the announcements that have been made 
about the $4.5 billion for Africa by UAE. And of course, the establishment of the Altera Fund for about $30 billion, although we'll need to see the details of how Africa can be able to access uh, that fund. But I think I need to acknowledge with very grateful thanks the contributions of a number of countries that have indicated uh, that they will support the, this alliance for green infrastructure in Africa. We have Germany, we have France, we have Japan, and among, other, among others, yes. Okay. Because what's really needed then to make energy projects in Africa investable? I hear people talk about a lot of potential issues and barriers, political risk, sometimes regulatory risk. One of the issues that comes up very often when you talk to people is currency risk and the issues with having revenues in local currency and then trying to finance in US dollars. What do you think needs to happen typically to a project to actually get international capital to support it? I think, uh, it's, you know, I use the word bankability, but bankability is very general. It, it encompasses so many things. Uh, bankability will encompass how well you've um, identified and apportioned the project risks, including what you just mentioned, the convertibility. Convertibility is only one aspect of bankability. So, of course, beyond that, you'll be interested in the realm of what you call credit enhancement. So when it comes to, for example, the issue of, of forex convertibility, there are uh, guarantee instruments or um, not necessarily guarantee. There, there are guarantee instruments and other credit enhancement mechanisms that will mitigate that risk. So I think what, you, what, what rather than getting into into the details of each of, of the risks that are associated, of which convertibility is one, the best thing is to say there are a series of uh, various risks that are identified and mitigated accordingly and therefore to create what I call a bankable project. So we've been here at COP28 for the past week or so and talking about the various issues in mitigation and adaptation that we've been talking about. When you go back to Africa and you talk to people in Africa about what happened here, what are those conversations going to be like? I mean, one of the things that I hear quite a bit as I talk to people around COP28 is, and you talk about Africa, people say, well, it's important to realise that climate change is not the priority in Africa for most people, for many countries. Issues of poverty alleviation, economic development, access to energy, all those kind of things are higher priorities for leaders and for populations than climate. Do you think that's right? And if so, how do you kind of reconcile that with the kind of work that's happening here at COP28? I'm not sure that is 100% correct because all those issues are there, poverty, etc., uh, etc. Et but what climate change is doing is actually a multiplier of all those things. It is actually exacerbating all those challenges that you've alluded to. And therefore, it is important that we find ways of addressing climate change. And I'll explain why. If you look at, for example, we are told that climate change in Africa is locked in for the next 20 years. What that means is that even if we don't emit anymore, we are going to continue seeing extreme weather events occurring in greater frequency and in greater severity. And yet, Africa is the most vulnerable and least adaptive to impacts of climate change. That's a fact. I mean, for example, nine out of 10 of the most vulnerable countries to climate change are in Africa. And therefore, Climate change will only exacerbate all those other challenges that you know, people would want to think 
a higher priority. So I think what, what I would say is that we need to pay due attention to climate change because whether you like it or not, it's here with us and therefore we might as well address it. And that's why I talked about the issue of uh, sort of focusing a lot on the continent, especially on adaptation. So one of the other things I would want to you know, go back and talk about is that through the renewable projects, through the what I, I call a bankable project that we are, we are generating through, for example, Alliance for Green Infrastructure in Africa, we'll be able to generate sufficient power for purposes of providing electricity access to the 600 million people who lack access. That's number one. And number two, the other thing that I would, I would be happy to report back in Africa is the issue of clean cooking. Clean cooking has never been given priority, any significant priority at any of the COPs in the past. And this year, there has been, and thanks to my bank's uh, sort of contribution in this regard, we have been able to prioritize clean cooking at this COP, and there were a number of very high-profile events, as a result of which uh, I think we have reached a point of inflection as far as clean cooking is concerned on the continent. Mark you, we have about 1 billion people in Africa without access to clean cooking. And as a result, we have about 600,000 people, especially women and children, dying because of lack of access to clean cooking. It is not proper to be in that situation in this day and age. That's number one. Number two, by providing access to clean cooking, apart from the health benefits, there are significant impacts on, 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 for example, on emissions. Because charcoal or biomass or cow dung are worse emitters than clean cooking. So you will be able to reduce the amount of emissions. And I think I saw a figure to the effect that if we address, if we were able to achieve global access to clean cooking, we would be able to save up to 1.5 gigatons of emissions, so which is huge. And number two, also the fact that you will avoid deforestation and enhance and reduce biodiversity loss. So it's, it's actually clean cooking has health, uh, health or life benefits. It has reductions in emissions and avoids deforestation. So that's very interesting. And those really are the areas of investment and technology that are the most exciting, aren't they? When you get those kind of multiple benefits, when you're both addressing climate change and improving health human benefits. health, giving people better services, increasing access to energy, as you say, preventing destruction of ecosystems. Those are some pretty exciting things to be able to do. One more, I've just remembered. As part of this COP, we were part of a team. The bank was part of a team that launched what we call the best consortium, Battery Energy Storage System Consortium. And the idea here, again, goes back to the issue of energy access. The idea here is to reduce the cost of battery energy storage because that will be a game changer as far as electrification is concerned. Because what it means, you can be able to enhance the uptake of wind and solar into your power systems through battery energy storage by being able to discharge power during off-peak period or when you don't have wind or when you don't have solar. So I think that for me was also a very big and important take from this COP. Well, it's very exciting to hear about all these developments, as I say, and certainly these are things we're going to be watching very closely and wanting to hear more about in the years to come. For now, though, Kevin Kariuki, thanks very much indeed. It's really a pleasure to be on this podcast. Thank you very much. It's been great talking to you. 
Kevin Kariyuki, thanks very much for joining us. And thanks also to Mark Davis and Leticia Dumaray, who we heard earlier in the episode. That's all from us for now, and that is finally everything from the Energy Gang on COP28. We'll be back next year with some new topics and all the latest news and views on the energy transition. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.